completely unbalanced. Come on now, Brian. That's pretty awful. Oh my god. <laughs> He's unbalanced. This guy is a lunatic. These men lived in a much different time. God, we got some kooky people back in this time. It's not obvious that we are professionals. You're not paying attention. We know what we're doing. <laughs> but I'm serious. Can we start already? Welcome to Unbalanced Views, a mostly American history podcast. My name's Brian. I uh, went to grad school, learned some history. I taught some history for uh, a number of years. And in every episode, I try to teach my friend, my nemesis, my colleague, Mike Ozerinos, a little bit of history because, as it turns out, he is completely ignorant. How you doing, Mike? Grew up at a circus. I'm completely ignorant. <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, but he learns me. <laughs> uh, what's your sunshine this week, buddy? Ooh, ooh, let's see. My sunshine this week. This week. We just recorded yeah, it. Yeah, it's been a short week, right? Mm-hmm. Like a few days. Um, well, we're doing a, we're doing a part two, uh, you know, recording sessions. So sure, sure, sure. So to all the listeners, it would be a week. Yeah. Um, uh, let's see. My sunshine is that you know i'm busy again i started my new job so i'm i'm pretty happy about that and uh, it's beautiful beautiful weather right now here in um baltimore area i'm sure it's always beautiful where you are in florida it has been raining nonstop for just a couple of days well not nonstop but it's been raining pretty bad every uh, every afternoon for for a few days it's a uh, pretty bad actually um, my, my driveway has been, been thoroughly flooded. Um, cause I know I normally have to, um, I normally have to go and sort of dig out trenches around this time of year, uh, off the side of my driveway, um, <clears throat> to channel the water out away from the driveway and down out, you know, out into the yard. And by the time a, a full year comes around, those trenches have kind of filled in. And so now, uh, so I have to do it every year until I eventually decide to put in a, a French drain. But uh, French drains are time consuming and expensive and a pain. And have you thought about have you thought about a moat? <laughs> that is essentially what we have in our driveway. Just do a moat with like one of those drawbridge wooden driveway things. Yeah. And then you could just drive right across it and you're it's secure. So you're not going to worry about anyone coming to your house at all. You can I've seen them with alligators or without. So <laughs> well, we have those go, here, so that would be easy to yeah, get if I needed one. Yeah, exactly. So, and yeah. if you don't get them, I'm sure they'll come there anyway, and you'll find them in there. But I mean, that might not be a bad idea. People that built this house—I mean, my house is not that old. It was built in uh, 2007, so it's not—it's not that old. 15 years, I guess. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. They—they they did a great job in the construction of the home, but whoever did the driveway mm-hmm. uh, should lose their license. <laughs> um, because for uh, a driveway that is 15 years old and we've lived here now for five years, I guess. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, the driveway has always been busted up and cracked up. And, um, I mean, it's fine, but it's, it's, you know, shouldn't have been that way. Concrete shouldn't have been split up and busted up, uh, after, you know, 10 years or whatever. Right. Um, not the way that this is. And, and they didn't bother to account for the, the water runoff. Um, so it all pools up in the, the bottom corner of my driveway. And uh, now, I mean, they did at least elevate the, the I have a garage so that it, they elevated the garage so that uh, the, the floodwaters don't come into the garage at least, but they do make it inconvenient to park in the driveway because the person in the passenger side of the car is uh, they're getting wet feet. That's all, you know, you're getting wet feet when you get out of the car, unless I park, uh, unless you park about halfway up the driveway. And yeah. I don't, I don't have like a big house or a big yard. I mean, I'm, you know, uh, or a big driveway. I mean, it's, it's, you could stack, uh, two cars back to back and then you're, you're in the road. So okay. there's not a lot of wiggle room. You know what I mean? You right, could, uh, right, 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 um, right. You could, uh, I guess maybe if, if I pulled all the way up to touching the garage door or something, uh, you could maybe get two cars and then one parallel, maybe, yep. um, yep. you know, yeah, but there's nowhere really to run and hide from the, uh, from the pool of water when it rains. Uh, when, I mean, when we get a lot of rain, when we get a little rain, it's all fine, but. Anyway, it's been bad here. So, so yeah, so that's not sunshine at all. Not at all. <laughs> not at all. I'm uh, not sunshine. What is your sunshine? I guess I'm going to go with, uh, it's been a long time since I had the opportunity, especially living here in Florida, to watch both the Orioles 
and the Ravens mm. on primetime national television the same night at the same time. Nice. Um, that was, uh, I mean, I know it's silly and it's uh, minor, but it was a pretty cool thing to see. Uh, the Orioles beat the uh, the Red Sox and the uh, the Ravens continue to uh, to just own the preseason, even though it doesn't matter. <laughs> I wish it um, did. I really do. Pretty fun. I really wish it did because yeah. I'd be partying every year. You know, I'd at least be watching one of those games, yeah. but I don't watch any of them. I do, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't go out of my way, but when it's on national TV, especially cause down here. Did you watch um, the UFC fight over the weekend? No, I couldn't care less. Oh. I, um, yeah, I just, I could not care less, um, about, uh, MMA. Okay. Well, um, there was a, there was a time where I used to w- watch a little bit. Um, but I, those days are long, long in my gone. past. I mean, um, I got you. let's see. Uh, I have a seven-year-old daughter. My, my MMA watching days are at least seven years in the past at this point. <laughs> I, have, I have actually become a very big fan lately. I have a man crush on Dana White. Um, I really uh, – you, like you always like the worst people. Anyway, yeah. No, I love him. I think – you know he's he's clearly one of the best and and has risen to be one of the best uh, major sports CEO slash commissioners whatever you want to call them of all the sports. But he's just such a cool dude. He's a billionaire practically. I mean I don't know if he's technically a billionaire, but he he became one when they sold that company. And he seems like such a down to earth guy. I watch a lot of his Instagram posts, a uh, little cooking like show, not show, but clip where he cooks something different every friday and uh just really seems like a cool dude and i and i've heard i still haven't gone it's it's one of the next things i'm gonna do i'm gonna i heard the ufc live is one of the greatest sporting events you can go to live and i'm gonna definitely check that out i'd love to go to vegas and see a ufc fight that's one of the things in the next year to two i'm gonna do i wish they'd come to baltimore but uh kind of like you know the indy car they they said yeah no more. <laughs> I say if you're going to have a sport where a couple of men beat each other up, uh, you should at least have a, you should at least have uh, have kayfabe and you should have, uh, you know, heels. And I mean, you know, give me give me some good old fashioned uh, 1980s, 1990s style wrestling. I'll take that any day of the week. <laughs> we got to well, listen, listen, listen. Give me a good replay. We have to get a replay. What's going on? Where do yeah. we leave off? Right. And uh, let's get this party rolling. Okay. So we left off. um, In fact, we found a nice little stopping point last time where we had just talked about how the police and even some of these extra legal organizations like the Committee of 14 Mm -hmm. were rapidly trying to clamp down on what they called prostitution in Chinatown. And then they've gone beyond that. Like they shut down a place because they had, you know, music and dancing. Um, they were shutting down these like um, these opium den fronts that were mm-hmm. kind of they were a scam tourist traps, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were shutting down those. And essentially, the police had had done everything in their power. They were literally one guy, Captain Michael Galvin, was trying to like he wanted to shut down Chinatown completely. Yeah. So all of this is going on in Chinatown. And we finish gotcha. by, by pointing out that all of this happens in the aftermath of this uh, of the L.C. Siegel murder, which is wild. Because that didn't even happen in Chinatown. It happened in Midtown. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about, as I was editing the last one, one of the things you said was, oh, people all got into their own enclaves. There's a little Italy, there's a Greek town, there's a Polish town and all that. And the point I wanted to sort of make by pointing out all these Italians that lived in Chinatown and all of these you know, other, other people that were living in Chinatown and all that is that those ethnic spaces ended up kind of being created by these external pressures because people wouldn't let them uh, go other places or bourgeois Americans would try and create these social barriers to people moving out of those areas. Even when they lived all throughout the city, there was a kind of uh, press push to pretend as if these communities were isolated and homogenous you know, ethnic groups even when the reality was that that wasn't the case, but by kind of pushing that narrative over and over and over and over, they eventually create the reality that they pushed as kind of a, as if it were true, even though it wasn't. Mm -hmm. So we've talked about that, this, 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 the issue of uh, morality and and opium and all this stuff. But now we're going to look about how Leon Ling's rapid disappearance uh, from the scene sort of disappeared, created a whole variety of problems for the police and their focus on Chinatown, because again, 
the focus of the police and the press is on specifically Chinatown, um, even though that's not where the murder happened. So, you know, that that's just always kind of keep that in the back of your mind. Like, why are they doing that when it doesn't? There were reports that Ling uh, and Siegel had first met in upper Manhattan. And that clearly showed that people like Ling were integrated into the city, right? They weren't isolated to Chinatown. And for the police, setting up checkpoints at Chinatown's borders would never be sufficient, right? Ling kind of proves that that's not going to work. And and Ling is the main suspect right now. Leon Ling is the guy who disappeared after they found Elsie Siegel in his apartment. Lee Ling. Leon Ling, who has an alias, William L. Leon. He is the number one suspect. He is the number one suspect. And in all likelihood, the guy that did it. I mean, you know, we could never really prove it today, but probably he's the guy. What do you mean? There's no solving this? Yeah, there's no solving this. I told you that in the beginning. We don't, we'll, ne- we could never really know because he disappeared. Gotcha. We, and he's never found. So the mystery is not one we're going to solve in terms of that. We're going to sort of, you know, I'll solve this. Okay. Look at it other ways. <laughs> <laughs> Chinese owned businesses and residences uh, kind of proliferated throughout the New York metropolitan area. And that meant a police were going to have to find new ways to surveil and to restrict the movement of Chinese American men in order to restore what they saw as the proper moral order. So concerned citizens would um, assist the police, right, in their efforts. They scrutinize the daily activities of their Chinese neighbors. They would report them to police if they thought anything was was mm-hmm. uh, funny or awry. So, for example, on June 26th, now, uh, they found the body, just to refresh your memory, on June 18th. So yep. we're talking about, a, a, you know, so it hits the paper June 19th. Several Chinese men visited Joe Wong's laundry in Newark, New Jersey. One of the men just had a 20-minute conversation with Joe Wong. Uh-oh. The neighbor saw this as very suspicious, and he'd been spying on the laundry sure. ever since he read about the Siegel case. Wong, who spoke perfect English, like the police showed up, and he... Dismissed the accusation. The neighbor basically said the guy who came and talked to him for 20 minutes was Leon Ling. And of course, Wong was like, no, like, I don't know Leon Ling. That was, <laughs> you know, my cousin or whatever. But of course, now he knows that he's being surveilled, right? Like, and that's a pretty uncomfortable position to be in. You know, somebody's watching you like all the time if the police show up because, because of the great crime of having a 20 minute conversation. Mm-hmm. One of the things that's interesting about the, is about the laundries. Chinese workers were excluded from industrial jobs. They concentrated in that one field of laundry, so much so that Chinese laundries become kind of a a cultural trope, like for decades. By 1880, in fact, 75% of the city's Chinese residents all worked in just that one industry. They were probably printing money. I I mean, maybe. By 1898, there were some 13,000 Chinese uh, living outside Chinatown throughout New York City. 13,000. 1898? By 1898. Okay. Um, throughout New York City, the Chinese hand, you know, hand laundries proliferated like in every part of the city. In the 1897 business direct, there were about 1,000 listings under the heading Chinese laundries. Now, they listed non-Chinese laundries as well. Mm-hmm. And Chinese laundries separately in the business directory, which is interesting. Chinese laundries made up about 70% of the total laundry industry in New York. Non-Chinese laundries were listed with a business name or a proprietor's name at the very least. But the Chinese laundries were in their own separate category, had no names. They only listed an address as if they were all interchangeable. Like (laughs) one Chinese laundry is the same as another Chinese laundry. Even though the places did have names and they had proprietor's names. Mm They were listed in the business directory just as Chinese laundry address, Chinese laundry address, which is, again, kind of a, an interesting thing. It's a stereotype, right? Like it becomes a stereotype, even in the way that it's printed in the business directory. Mm-hmm. And comparing it to non-Chinese owned laundries, you can really see that in a stark way. Anyway, when white women were seen uh, with Chinese men, mm-hmm. the police acted swiftly. A police raid at a laundry at 309 West 47th Street followed reports that a white woman entered but did not leave. Police claimed that the laundry, which was owned by Louis Sui and his white wife Josie, was a front for an opium den. On June 22nd, the New York Times, citing police sources, claimed that the raid had produced evidence of, quote, pipes, bowls, needles, and morphine, end quote, found in a room with bunks, and a white woman named Grace Hudson. Now, 
Hudson was released by the police magistrate because there was no evidence of her smoking opium. You recall opium smoking had been made illegal in 1909, right? Mm-hmm. The following day, the New York Times reported that there were no charges brought against the Sueys because there was no evidence of any wrongdoing. So on June 22nd, the New York Times quoted the police saying they found all these things, pipes, bowls, needles, and morphine. The next day, the New York Times reported that there were no charges because they had no evidence of any wrongdoing. So, right. so either the police lied to the New York Times, which makes sense because the police lie mm-hmm. all the time, or the New York Times... Like, I mean, they cited a police source, but again, like, it doesn't seem like there was ever anything wrong. This is just the sort of harassment that Chinese businesses are dealing with, right? Yeah, I think it's more likely police lying because humans lie and some humans are obviously police Police. and a very small, (laughs) small percentage of them do lie. So go ahead. They all lie. So (laughs) um, stories of opium dens disguised as laundries proliferated in the press when Coupled with the revelation that Siegel was murdered in a building that had a chop suey restaurant, Uh-oh. and I'm putting that in quotes because these weren't really called chop suey restaurants. That's just what white people called uh-huh. Chinese restaurants. It's sort of a, it's it's got a kind of a racisty chop feel suey. to it, but I, I don't know. I, I remember saying chop suey when I was a kid. Everything was chop suey. Like you want chop, I want to make chop suey of you, right? You know, I'll chop you up. I'll make you chop suey. Because I don't even know what chop suey is. I honestly don't know what it is. But. Because you've always been racist. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so that's not is that that's not racist. Come on. Um. Anyway, because Siegel was murdered in a building that had a chop suey restaurant. Now, mind you, she wasn't murdered in the chop suey restaurant, but she was murdered in a building that had one. <laughs> Automatically linked them. Chop suey restaurants and laundries would end up facing scrutiny by the police and become enmeshed in these fears that the kind of sexual and moral dangers Mm -hmm. of Chinatown were spilling into the city at large. So Chinese laundries were, in some regards, doubly suspect. Laundry was considered women's work, but Chinese laundries were almost exclusively owned and worked by men, usually single men or often single men. And we've talked about some of the reasons like why that is Chinese men were excluded from industrial labor. They were excluded and women were excluded from coming here. So of course the men were the ones doing, you know, working in these laundries. It's one of the few businesses open to them. Right. So that's what they do. However, when we uh, kind of think about the anxiety that the, the white bourgeois is already feeling about Chinese men's sexual and moral behavior, having them then occupy a known kind of feminine labor space made them somehow even more dangerous and degenerate mm-hmm. as if their, their very existence threatened the kind of gendered social order of, of the times. So the laundries and chop suey restaurants throughout the city were seen as like micro Chinatown, almost as if they, no matter where they were collapsed the space between wherever they were and the dangerous den of vice and moral decay that Chinatown had sort of come to symbolize in the press. Reformers feared that the sexually repressed, ambiguously gendered laundries and the racially mixed restaurants posed a grave danger to the city's women and children. The uh, obsession with Chinese masculine space kind of seeps into the Leon Ling investigative reports as well. So the murder took place at 782 8th Avenue in Midtown. But descriptions of the crime scene completely severed Ling's room from the surrounding neighborhood, as if it existed sort of spatially removed from its actual location and was somehow connected to Chinatown, even though it was six miles away. Does that make sense? Yes. The way that Ling's apartment is described and the way a lot of these businesses are described is as if they're in Chinatown, even though they're oftentimes on the complete opposite side of the city. So... You know, it's, it's, there's a kind of, um, using, using the idea of Chinatown as a, a, a trope or as shorthand mm-hmm. to scare people and then sort of comparing these, these dangerous quote unquote spaces with Chinatown so that people almost kind of imagine Chinatown is spilling out into the city, right? Yes. For example, with Leon Ling's apartment, there were no mention of Times Square, which is connected to where Leon Ling's apartment is or the Tenderloin neighborhood, which mm-hmm. is right there. Non-white residents were generally left out of of any descriptions. There's even a a bike store next to the so-called chop suey restaurant 
and it gets no attention whatsoever. So, yeah, non-white residents were left out as if they didn't exist. In Correct. It's all started. completely reversed. So, yes. Right, right, right. Started that so, way now. It's uh, reversed completely, 100%. Right. The World, um, the newspaper, described Ling's rooms as, quote, miserable and tawdry, hmm. a picture of Mongolian life in an American city as could be imagined. Everywhere were the indications of the usual Chinatown den, um, you know, in his mid midtown Manhattan apartment. <laughs> the, the New York Herald described his apartment as, quote, decorated more or less gaudily in the Chinese fashion. The walls were hung with placards bearing Chinese inscriptions, and the walls were covered with pictures, mostly photographs of white women. Some of these pictures had been cut from magazines, but the majority had undoubtedly been obtained from the owner, end quote. Thus, Ling was presented as having a kind of unhealthy fascination with white women, uh-huh. and the newspapers presented these women as victims already, like as trophies that he had hung on his walls. Uh-huh. So the descriptions continued, quote, over the windowsill was a little box of rouge powder in a Chinese box, contrasted with it the picture of the virgin and child hanging over the dresser. More characteristic were the numerous vases in hideous forms of devils and evil gods and cheap, highly colored pictures of other Chinese fancies, end quote. So you could see in these descriptions that anything American or Chinese, I mean, I'm sorry, American or Christian is presented as like a masquerade, something false that he's putting up to sort of fool people. And everything Chinese is treated as like the real Leon Ling, which, of course, is an absurd uh, accusation to kind of make. You have no idea why he hung the, the picture of, of the, the Madonna and child. You know, you, you can't say that it was because he was pretending or masquerade. Like you, there's no evidence to suggest that it's just like, I don't know, some sort of weird trap. Um, but the press will treat it that way. Yep. White women too were subjected to this same kind of double writing when it came to their interactions with Chinese immigrants. There's a, I have a fictional example I want to go through. In 1905, Walter Campbell wrote a play called A Night in Chinatown. This play tells the story of Mildred, a well-meaning but poor flower girl working in Chinatown. Mm-hmm. Mildred's parents died and left her destitute without patriarchal protection. Unbeknownst to Mildred, she's actually an heiress. A fact discovered by one of the main villains, Antonio Gonzalez, a Spaniard. Even though Mildred loves an American sailor who is off fighting in the Philippines named Jack Rivers, Gonzalez tries to woo her to seize her fortune. When his attempts are kind of rebuffed, he enlists his Chinese business partner, Moi Ki, to kidnap her, dress her in fine silks, and get her addicted to opium in order to weaken her resolve so Gonzalez can marry her. Moi Ki agrees, but he is secretly in love with Mildred himself and had been secretly leaving envelopes full of cash at her flower stand anonymously in order to help her out. But Mildred is a working-class heroine. She expresses displeasure at finding the cash. She equates it to charity that she neither wants nor needs, you know, like the working class who never want Mm -hmm. any help. (laughs) This is clearly like a bourgeois play Mm -hmm. written with some idealized version of the middle of the working class, right? We don't want any help. We're above that. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, Mildred protects her virginity from these fiends, fighting them off. And in one scene, she rejects Moiki's marriage proposal by yanking her hand away from him and telling him, quote, let go of my hand and don't you ever dare touch me again. If you can't understand how degraded a white girl must feel at the idea of marrying a Chinaman, you at least can understand me when I tell you that I love someone else, a good, honest man of my own race and color, whom I intend to marry, end quote. We're not really hiding the racism. I know it's pretty. Eh. You don't think so? I mean, it appears to be to us, but to them, it wasn't. You know, that's what I always I always think like to them. Like my grandmother talked like this. She wasn't racist, but she talked kind of like that. She wanted me to marry my own kind. She used to say that all the time, meaning Italian or Greek or something. And I used to say that's terrible. It's the racist thing. But she didn't know that. She wasn't an evil, evil person. I, I feel like these are kind of the same. However, when the main character, this working class white girl says, you should understand how degraded a white girl would feel at the idea of marrying a Chinese man. You have to understand that. We've already talked about this. There are already lots of interracial marriages in the city. So it's not like this doesn't exist. So it is a bourgeois set of ideals that are being pushed as if they're universal when they're clearly not. But we're going to talk more about those 
about those interracial marriages very soon. So, so let me jump back into the play for a minute. Mildred might not be attracted to Asians. But that's not what that's she okay. says. She doesn't say, I'm not attracted to you, Moiki. She no. says, don't you understand how, de- how degrading that. it would be for a white girl to marry a Chinese man? Degraded. <laughs> so to be clear, this, this story is a side story. This has nothing to really do with Li Ling and Siegel. This is a play. So by looking at culture sometimes, by looking at cultural products, we get a sense of what the people that consume those products value. So, so yeah, this is a play to give you an idea of sort of, um, of the kind of pressures on white women. Gotcha. So anyway, after she turns down Moy Key, Rivers appears uh, again, coming back from, and this is interesting. He returns, this is 1905. He's returned from the war in the Philippines where he's been fighting uh, Spain in Asia. Again, the antagonists in this play are a Spaniard and a Chinese immigrant, and the the hero has returned from fighting the Spanish in Asia. So anyway, he returns to save Mildred from the threat of miscegenation and destruction. Mildred is clearly a, a model for white female virtue, even though she still needs like white male patriarchal protection in the end. Of course. There are two other female characters, though, that represent women's failings okay. uh, instead, and they kind of suggest how white women might be redeemed from their their moral failings okay mm-hmm. so only if you don't slip too far the two okay. other white women in the play were crazy kate <laughs> who was a white quote opium fiend end quote who gonzalez enlisted to assist moiki in getting mildred hooked on opium the other white girl was named Mamie, and she was a chinatown tough girl that's in quotes she was also an addict mm-hmm. but she was, you know, sort of a, a street tough. She helped Jack Rivers and an Irish cop named Barney Brogan rescue Mildred. At the end of the play, Brogan proposes to Mamie, who accepts. She gives up opium and the Chinatown life to become a proper working class wife. Oh, or, as she put it, quote, real high-toned loity doing me washing Monday, me ironing Tuesday, getting me husband's dinners, and rushing to Growler Aww. every evening. Just like all the swell people do in Harlem, rushing the growler, going to fill up your buckets of beer. Yes, yes. Yeah. I love it. I love it. So, yes. Mamie, the hard drinking, opium smoking, tough talking street urchin, was redeemable in the end. Redeemable to modest working class respectability because she never succumbed to prostitution mm-hmm. or violated interracial taboos like crazy Kate had for her. The conclusion of the play actually emphasizes Crazy Kate, who is in a mental and physical like breakdown. She's completely broken, lost, doomed, damned. She's a tragic figure, warning against female indulgence in sex and, quote, oriental luxuries, end quote. So you could see how women's actions were being kind of socially policed in the culture. Mildred's upper crust virtue was rewarded with wealth and her dashing American hero husband. Mamie, tarnished but not degraded, she got working-class respectability with an Irish cop husband. But she's still, you know, hard-drinking. She's rushing the growler every night, right? You know, she still has her flaws, and those flaws are what's going to keep her from being kind of having the life that Mildred has, obviously. Crazy Kate was left desolate and degraded, broken, used, and abused because she had succumbed to prostitution with Chinese men. And so, you know, or at least that was the implication. Mm-hmm. So she could not be redeemed. Mm-hmm. A scholar named Michael Denning argued that the, the rape seduction plot line that were really common in stories at this time, he argues that this was actually a coded trope that had less to do about rape and seduction and more about working class resistance to the unwanted advances of the wealthy and powerful, which I find really interesting. And just for whatever it's worth, in Mildred, we kind of see this point that she has this working class pride in managing her flower stand. She doesn't want charity. She gets mad about it. Mm-hmm. And when Jack Rivers suggests that they move out of the city at the towards the end of the play, she asserts her own independence, declaring she prefers her excitement, the excitement of the city over the monotony of the country. And good for her. Yeah. Most important, she fights off Gonzalez and Moiki in order to protect her virginity. And she even threatens to kill herself rather than sacrifice her virtue. The fact that the audience knows from the outset that she's an heiress also kind of works to define her high-class respectability despite her working-class status, Mm -hmm. right? So that's the uh, fictional stuff. Let's look at some of the real stories. 
journalists uh, often covered real stories in a lot of the same kind of way, drawing on a lot of the same sort of tropes. They would also draw these clear distinctions between depraved and virtuous women. So in 1892, for example, World published a story about the upcoming wedding of a 21-year-old named Fanny Eustace to Charlie Wu, who owned a cigar factory at 96 Park Street. The press or the world dubbed her, quote, fickle Fanny, end quote. She was considering whether to go through with the marriage or to leave Chinatown altogether. Fickle Fanny was raised in a respectable middle-class family. She attended a young ladies' boarding school called St. Catherine's Hall in Maine. Now, she had to work after graduation, though, uh, took a job at Western Union with her brother in Portland, Maine. She learned stenography, and then she moved to a reputable law firm in Boston, working as a stenographer. Fickle Fanny was contrasted with her cousin, Grace Gordon, who dressed as a boy and ran away to be a cabin boy at age 14. After a few months at sea, the crew discovered she was a girl, but not before she had fallen in love with a Chinese steward on the ship. Once her sex was discovered, she moved to Chinatown, and then she visited Fanny in Portland, Portland, Maine, several times. And she would tell her these stories, uh, exotic stories about Chinatown that piqued Fanny's curiosity. Mm -hmm. Eventually, Eustace, Fickle Fanny, followed Gordon to Chinatown and began smoking opium, like Gordon did. The report through the whole story spoke of Gordon as if she was like a disease vector spreading contagion to the respectable, almost genteel Fanny Eustace, ensnaring her in the degeneracy of Chinatown with opium. Eustace perpetually was treated as an unwitting victim. She's treated in sympathetic tones throughout the piece, like she doesn't know what she's doing. Gordon, on the other hand, had violated gender norms by cross-dressing in order to seek her independence, right? Her pursuit of an interracial romance was portrayed Uh, as leading directly to opium addiction and sexual promiscuity. She was a danger not only to herself, but a social menace to respectable white women everywhere. After all, she dragged poor sweet Fanny Eustace away from a respectable position in Boston and her family in Maine to Chinatown, where she's going to marry this Chinese man. Unbelievable. I know. Even though he's like a cigar factory owner, like he's wealthy. Yeah, I like this guy. So the wealth doesn't even matter because anyway... So Fanny and Charlie are both from, well, they're both well-to-do, obviously. Charlie's an entrepreneur. I don't know if he's an entrepreneur. He owns a, a cigar factory. Um, rolling cigars was mm-hmm. a thing that Chinese uh, immigrants did. It was another one of the jobs yep. they did a lot yep. of. Um, so are they from big families here? What's I have no on? idea. I don't only know what the press reported. They only reported about um, Fanny. She has a brother. I mean, we know that much. And Grace is her cousin. We don't know anything beyond that. And his cousin... This wacko Grace who runs gallivants around, dressed as a boy, hooks up with some some other uh, dude on a train. Ship. And now she's back. Yeah. Ship, then she's back. Right. So that's how it's all portrayed, right? I mean, but but that story tells us nothing about what actually happened with any of it. Okay. I mean, that story tells us a uh, a very specific. And she's back. So So Grace is back for the wedding? Fanny is the one getting married. This story is about whether or not yeah, Fanny is yeah. actually going to get married because she's having second thoughts. Is Grace back and now in, in, with Fanny talking to her about the wedding? Grace is kind of irrelevant. Okay. Grace dragged her into opium addiction, <gasps> and she's just the bad influence that happens to be lingering about. Oh, my about. God. Fanny's hooked on opium? She's smoking opium, yeah. So that's, again, according to the press. Okay. Uh, how much of this story is true? Who knows? Gotcha. Because the reporter is trying to paint a narrative. Here. Right. And how much of it is true, it's hard to tell. Um, He certainly doesn't give either of these women any agency. Grace Gordon is given agency when she dresses like a man, a boy, to run away to get a job because she's trying to seek her own independence. But there's no exploration of, like, what is her home life like? Is she fleeing because she's in a terrible situation? Is she seeking out her? You know, I mean, like, there's no there is a way to interrogate her story that certainly would be more sympathetic or at least curious as to why she made the choices she made. Mm-hmm. When she falls in love with a Chinese steward on the ship, there's no thought of maybe that's because he's an awesome guy and they got along great and they should be married. Right. Right. They're, that's not even considered. Nope. It's just the story is presented as if that is uh, a shorthand for like, because she falls in love with this Chinese steward, it is assumed like that she is going to become an opium addict. And lo and behold, she does. Right. It's like, Oh, you fell in love with a Chinese man, which means you were already probably smoking opium, and that's why you did it. 
Right. The reporter wanted to make clear throughout the whole thing, Fanny was to be pitied, but Gordon was not. She was to be scorned. She was a, a polluter of the social body, you know, like a disease. She was transmitting immorality to unwitting families, bringing disruption and possibly even death, right? Even worse, she brought the possibility of biracial children, the symbol of moral pollution and, and evidence of the, quote, mongrelization of the white race, end quote. The reporter doubted that Eustace was going to be able to escape Chinatown. That's fickle Fanny. Mm-hmm. Even though Charlie Wu was a man with an American-style haircut and suit, who described himself as, quote, a capitalist, end quote. For the reporter, quote, Fanny's five months of peculiar indulgence have wedded her to the Chinese. She will quit smoking one day, but she will probably never leave these people, end quote. In other words, Fanny was beyond redemption because she had engaged in this relationship with a Chinese man. A Chinese man who describes himself as a capitalist has an American haircut, wears American clothes, and is clearly trying to integrate into American society, right? So it doesn't even matter. Other journalists, like William Knorr, saw a connection between the the delinquent behavior of young women entering Chinatown and industrialization's erosion of patriarchal authority. Knorr wondered, quote, how young and comely women can cast their lot with the repulsive Chinese. (laughs) Then he suggested the problem rested with the larger society, saying, quote, it speaks ill for a civilized world when a little kindness will drive our women into the arms of heathens, end quote. He went on to chide working girls and women for succumbing to their individual consumer desires and enjoying the commercial leisure activities that were now available to them. Indeed, working class women, often operating with their own sets of cultural values, their own sexual mores, and of course, their own economic conditions that were different from middle class reformers like Noor, who looked down their noses at them. Given the cramped, small tenement housing available to most working class women, leisure and socializing generally occurred in public spaces, as unlike the middle class women of Uptown, there was little room for entertainment in their homes. The ready availability of cheap amusements like dance halls, amusement parks, and movie theaters provided public spaces where, according to the historian Kathy Pice, quote, young women experienced with new cultural forms that articulated gender in terms of sexual expressiveness and social interaction with men, linking heterosexual culture to a sense of modernity, individuality, and personal style, end quote. In other words, um, according to this historian, she's, she's looking at this time and says, working class women who really have no space at home for entertainment and socializing, they have, they have little choice but to go out into public spaces to do this. And because of the changes of the time, because of industrialization, there are places like dance halls and movie theaters that allow a kind of greater degree of independence and social mobility than had existed even a few years earlier before these places existed. Working class women with this kind of new freedom and newfound freedom and mobility do what people do when they get newfound freedom and, and mobility. They experiment with kind of new with these new cultural forms and they carve out their own new sort of generational uh, sexual expressiveness, the way they interact with men. There's a sense of modernity and individuality mm-hmm. and style mm-hmm. that, they ex- that they are expressing, you know, in, in their own new ways because they've broken out of a kind of a shell that had existed before there was anything to do. I mean, let's be honest, before things like amusement parks and movie theaters and, and all of that, like really for a long, long, long time, there's not a whole hell of a lot of a lot for people to do. Right. Like life is pretty damn boring, right? right? I mean, it just is. Uh, yeah, you know, you, yeah, there's just not yeah, a whole lot. Yeah. I was watching something today that really reminded me of that. Go ahead. Sure. So all of a sudden, you have all these new leisure activities, and you have the. It's honestly, there's like an invention of leisure time. Like this is a new sure. idea, and so you know, it makes perfect sense that people would start to experiment with you know it's like as as you're the way you experience time and space changes you're also going to change the way that you behave in those spaces yep because they're new so you get to carve out your own new existence it, it's like the it's like the amish when you turn 16 you get to go out and kind of experience the yeah. world and do your thing and then if if you if it's not for you you come back and you're amish and if not you know god bless you or think about I mean, and this is a gross example, but like as soon as there are smartphones with cameras and everything else and texting and all that, 50% of the single male population immediately decided, 
you know what everybody wants? Dick pics. <laughs> right? Like, I mean, think about it. Like when you and I were coming up in like high school, mm-hmm. did did you did it ever cross your mind like I should take a camera? To take a Polaroid. Let me take a Polaroid and mail it. And then people. just like hey and and then hand it out to random women <laughs> the way that men you know yeah. what I mean the way that men and i think some of that has has calmed down i'm not sure yeah, but it seems it like there that there was kind of a that's that kind of peaked and is it has been it's not non-existent but it is in decline the point being though it's the same kind of thing hey there's this new there's this new form of public expression that exists and so this creates an opportunity for people to to reimagine the way that they exist in public space that reevaluation includes things like their sexuality. I mean, you know, the way that they dress, the way they carry themselves, the way that they, uh, you know, what whether they wear makeup, whether they, you know, all sorts of things. Um, this all makes perfect sense uh, in exploring a, a kind of a new experience. So with that in mind, these women, you know, because they have this greater freedom and mobility than their mothers did, you know, their mothers who generally remained in sexually segregated neighborhood activities, often the working girls rejected the connection between female virtue and chastity. A lot of these working women believe they could be virtuous without protecting their chastity, that those two things were not mutually exclusive. Many women, working women, practiced something called treating, and that was kind of exchanging sexual favors for dates, gifts, male attention and protection in in public spaces. And this is part of an overall strategy for economic survival. These women did not see themselves in any way as prostitutes, yeah. but instead called themselves, quote, charity girls. End quote. <laughs> it's a form of economic survival. Mm-hmm. You can't make ends meet. Women get paid shit. Um, they, they are in possession. They are in constant possession of one of the most valuable commodities on the planet Earth, the vagine. And it's worth money. If you go to any strip club anywhere in America, you'll see men who are nine to five, very educated men just tossing their cash on stage with zero chance to go home with that girl. That's proof of how valuable and demanding that commodity is. Go ahead. I, I hear you. I, I don't like the idea of, of uh, yeah, I mean, the, the commodification. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you're, I gotcha. I gotcha. So the other thing is with these charity girls. They were not exchanging sex for money directly. Rather, it was kind of part of an elaborate exchange system that they created. It wasn't like there was a guidebook. You know, women were sort of doing this on the fly. Mm-hmm. And we look back and we're like, oh, wow, this was a like a pattern. We see this happening a lot. And so, so you can sort of make these broad conclusions, draw these broad conclusions. But it was just sort of happening in real time. Many women just making these choices. Yeah. The other thing that's interesting is that a lot of working women or working girls borrowed elements of fashion from prostitutes, even when they weren't sort of these charity girls. So this often led to confusion among reformers who could not or did not understand the distinctions between prostitutes and women, working women who were just borrowing fashion from prostitutes. Right. <laughs> and, and again, you can, you kind of see this today. Maybe, maybe. Yeah. 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 But you see it, you've seen it a lot of times with poor uh, African-American and Latino communities uh, or Latino, Latina communities where uh, working class neighborhoods and things where people have, um, they create these fa- these fashions, these styles that then five, six, seven, eight years after they've been kind of become popular on the street, all of a sudden they start to kind of seep mm-hmm. upwards into high fashion. And I mean, you think about like, think about things like torn jeans mm-hmm. and, um, you know, just, just the, the kind of, um, you know, the des- destroyed, destroyed clothing chic. Oh, yeah. And, a lot of that was created out of economic necessity. You have, you know, you can't afford more jeans. Your jeans are torn. So what's the next best thing? Make them take your torn jeans and turn them into a, a fashion statement, an iconic look or whatever. And that then seeps upwards to where, you know, people will pay like $500 for a pair of jeans that have been torn just the right way. And you're like, this is sort of insane. You know what I mean? Like they've been, they've been destroyed just right. It's weird. <laughs> anyway, same kind of thing where, you know, these working class women are looking at looking right. to prostitutes yes. for some fashion inspiration. The point here is that the accounts told by journalists may not really match up with the experiences of the women who were socializing with Chinese men, either in or out of Chinatown. The journalists viewed Chinatown and the interactions of white women and Chinese men through sort of bourgeois eyes, and they never really even attempted 
to understand any other view. They never really wanted to understand what the girls involved or the women involved were thinking or why they made their choices. They just sort of superimposed their own value structure on those decisions and found those those decisions to be lacking or, or, you know, morally bad. Like the police, they simply wanted to enforce a code of morality and social distance that they believed was appropriate, regardless of the feelings or rights of the people that were being policed. The murder of Elsie Siegel, the, quote, girl missionary, suggested that no woman in New York was completely safe from the Chinese and their establishments. Now, when the police began their investigation into Elsie Siegel's murder, the press launched into a debate over the supposed benefits of Chinese missionary activities. Uh, Captain Arthur Carey told the press that Leon Ling deceived the missionaries with whom he interacted. Carey said Ling had had played, quote, a missionary game, end quote. So he could meet young white women. Carey told the press, quote, this Chinaman has been working the missionary game for years. There's no question about it. He was one of the swell kind, too, and had the very best of the white women missionaries to choose as his teacher. That's the way the Chinamen settle these matters. If the high-toned Chinaman sees an ordinary, I'm going to skip over this uh, slur and just say an ordinary Chinese working class person, mm-hmm. butting in and getting an attractive woman missionary to accept him as a pupil, the influential one whispers a little advice, and the missionary then wonders what became of her pupil, end quote. In other words, Carrie is describing a kind of uh, flirtatious searching for a teacher coupled with the Chinese hierarchy that regulated which men were allowed which women. In this way, Carrie's doing a, a whole lot more than just simply profiling a murder suspect. He's ma- making a, a sweeping judgment upon all Chinese men who attended the, the Protestant missions. And he's making a claim about the powerlessness of white women to resist them, right? Mm-hmm. Captain Carey's comments launched a flurry of responses in the newspaper, overwhelmingly uh, asking uh, whether or not the mission served any valuable purpose. On June 21st, a New York Times editorial acknowledged that not all Chinese converts attended mission schools under false pretenses. Nonetheless, the sentimentality of female teachers prevented them from protecting themselves against the likes of Leon Ling. Ling, the Times claimed, quote, has posed for years as a convert of extraordinary piety, end quote. <laughs> the author believed the mission served an important role of Christianizing or at least teaching American customs and English language, but female missionaries presented too much risk. Other authors suggested that women should be monitored or restricted in their movements around the city. Perhaps like uh, Captain McQuaid had suggested in Pittsburgh, if you recall, he was the one that said, the police are going to follow every single female missionary and Sunday school teacher around no matter where they go. And if he finds any of them going into Chinese dives, they were going to be arrested and treated like common criminals. Um, that was, that, and, and I think the quote was something like, they'll be treated like common criminals until they learn, until these girls realize we are going to protect white womanhood. And it's like by arresting yeah. them and treating them like prostitutes. Okay. That's, you know, that's, Weird. Yep. Got it. In response, the emerging class of so-called, quote, new women, uh, these female professionals that kind of emerged at this time, right? Women are starting for the first time to really graduate from college, uh, uh, middle class, you know, bourgeois women graduating from college and going into professions. Now, limited professions, but some nonetheless. Anyway, these women felt attacked for pursuing a livelihood outside the home and began complaining about these proposed restrictions, not surprisingly. Uh-huh. On June 25th, 1909, Samuel Culver Hearn, a clergyman from Yonkers, submitted letters to both the New York Times and the world to try and set the record straight. Hearn leveled a striking assertion, and this is really important. He said, Elsie Siegel had not been a missionary. Hearn argued that the press had done a grave disservice to the Chinese mission schools by their repeated false claim that she was a Sunday school teacher. His letters inspired the Reverend Hui Kin of the Presbyterian Chinese Mission at 223 East 31st Street to tell the press, quote, Leon Ling was not a member of any mission. I know every mission school in Chinatown, and my workers and I have made inquiry at all of them, and we have yet to find a regular Sunday school that he ever attended, end quote. So Ling wasn't even a Christian. 
did not attend Sunday school. Ken went on, quote, the same is true of Miss Siegel. She is not known in any Chinese mission and has never taught in any mission, end quote. Indeed, so Leon Ling was no convert. Hmm. Despite overturning the narratives of the innocent Sunday school teacher and the treacherous Chinese missionary game player, these stories counteracted these and contradicted them came too late. Hmm. The image had already kind of made its mark in the public mind. People essentially decided they liked the original story better than the truth. And people continued to focus on reforming Chinese missions. Like laundries and restaurants, they were spaces of interracial interaction. And so reformers sought to reassert white masculine authority over them in order to contain the activities of Chinese men and white women. This is really fascinating. For a week, these stories are running about how she's this naive Sunday school teacher and he's a pretend Christian convert and neither thing is true. And the stories are all over the country. Mm -hmm. When the truth comes out, the reading public doesn't want to hear it. <laughs> so like you had pointed out before, you know, some, sometimes, you know, the press, they'll report a story, they'll get a name wrong, they'll get a fact wrong. But even when they issue a correction, sometimes it doesn't matter because the story's already out there. You can't unring the bell, baby. Yeah. And then you're, and then sometimes you're just sort of stuck with it. Again, I have a hard time believing that if the press really wanted to, they could have counteracted this by just over and over and over and over telling the truth. But people didn't want the truth and they knew that mm -hmm. it's much more, uh, insidious and it's much more scandalous and it's much more uh, scintillating that this is a Sunday school teacher and her like pupil gone bad, right? Like it's a much more exciting story. Yeah, absolutely. June 21st, the Brooklyn Daily Eagle expressed its concern about women's role in the missions in an editorial. They asked, quote, the people of this city are today asking a question which the churches concerned in mission, mission work among the expatriated Cantonese in New York would do well to answer. Why is it that young girls are considered essential to the Christianizing of these shirt-washing heathens? And <laughs> it's just so gross. <laughs> just, I mean, it's just... But it's so, I mean, I'm reading this stuff again as a historian. It's just a delight because like you read this stuff and everything up to those last three words actually seems kind of like reasonable, <laughs> like a reasonable question given the circumstances, kind of. And then, then you got to throw in a little slur, you know, you got to throw in a little. <laughs> anyway, despite their actual relationship bearing no relation to the Sunday school teacher pupil stereotype. Siegel's death represented the potential for racial and, tr and sexual transgressions in Chinese missions. By blaming, Siegel's by blaming Siegel's murder on her missionary work, people could blame her and Ling's romantic entanglement on the institution of the missions, rather than having to answer the far more difficult question about Siegel's own agency, about her own desires, mm -hmm. her sexual desires, and desires that seem completely unrelated to, say, Christian charity, mm -hmm. as it were, right? Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. <laughs> In other words, the stereotype protected the public from considering the possibility that a white woman romantically desired a Chinese man. Sure. Okay, so we've looked at how social and legal pressures were applied to trade, to businesses, to missions, in order to control and limit mobility and interaction uh, of white women and Chinese men. Uh, and then I want to briefly examine a few ways that the Siegel murder impacted interracial couples and families at the time. Maybe my favorite character in this whole sordid story is about to come up. I love this woman. <laughs> okay. So it's not surprising, probably, that Elsie uh, Siegel's murder brought unprecedented attention to New York City's Chinese mixed-race couples. On July 3rd, a New York Times reporter who was ostensibly trying to understand why a respectable white woman would marry a Chinese man. So the reporter went to Brooklyn in order to interview Mrs. Young, whose Chinese husband worked at the Russo-Chinese Bank in Manhattan. Mrs. Young was rightly indignant at the reporter's <laughs> questions. She complained about the biased <laughs> press coverage of the murder and the impact it was having on her own life and her own marriage. She snapped at the reporter, quote, people should mind their own damn business. There would not have been this much stir if Elsie Siegel had been mur murdered by a white man. It happened that a Chinaman did it. And all at once, everybody turns against the Chinese. They are as good as anybody else, end quote. 
The reporter pressed on, asking about their religious background, assuming Mrs. Young was a Sunday school teacher or a missionary and her husband had been her pupil. Young curtly responded, according to the paper, that she was not connected to missions in any way, nor had she ever been, and therefore challenged the myth that this was the only way middle-class white women could meet Chinese husbands. Mm-hmm. Um, I love her. Miss Young is my favorite. Because she's just like, first off, <laughs> where do you get off? Even asking, like, how dare you show up at my door? Ask me why I love my husband. <laughs> like, how dare you? <laughs> Secondly, like the implication, because of course, you know, this journalist showed up and was like, so was it opium? Are you a junkie? <laughs> they should, you know, they showed up like, so how long have you smoked opium? I, I don't. My husband's a banker, for God's sakes. You know, like at a time where being a banker really meant something. Mm-hmm. Right. You were one of the good guys mm-hmm. of capitalism or whatever. Anyway, I love her. And I love the fact that she calls them, that she calls out this New York Times reporter. If Elsie Siegel had been mur- murdered by a white man, it would have been news. But and the police would not be rounding up every white business owner and arresting them. Of course not. And, like rounding up every white person who was like in the building that the suspect lived in you know they wouldn't have done any of this stuff and that's in some ways the point of the story that i want to make is that like mm-hmm. the way that the police react is so fundamentally different than they would have reacted as mrs young says had it been a white person who had murdered her of course that like it's two systems of justice it's two legal systems you know in place anyway the chinese were not alone in dealing with the unwanted scrutiny the new york herald ran a story on july 11th about Kress Koyama, a Japanese man from Providence, Rhode Island, and his white 22-year-old fiancée, Mary Louise Bolback, from Brooklyn. According to the article, they called on numerous ministers to marry them, but every one of them, quote, declined when they caught sight of Mr. Koyama, end quote. Even though he was Japanese, his Asian features led to the same anti-Chinese reactions. Eventually, the couple had to be married in the funeral chapel of the Frank E. Campbell Undertaking Company because they could find no one else to perform the service. So can you imagine, like, you want to get married and the only place that, w- that will do the service is, like, the undertaker? <laughs> That's horrible. Ministers all like are like, sure. And then they meet him. They're like, oh, no, sorry. And he's like, no, I'm Japanese. <laughs> You're probably like, Sorry, I don't believe you. He's like, no, like, it's a whole different country. <laughs> um, like, we're a whole different people, completely different language and everything. Like, it's... <laughs> Uh, The general newspaper reading public was not particularly aware of mixed-race Chinese couples Mm -hmm. until numerous accounts appeared in the press after the Siegel murder. Right. There were lots of mixed-race couples, but they didn't really make the news, so people weren't really aware of them. Okay. One of the first witnesses whose account was published was Mrs. Yim Ki, the white wife of a Chinese waiter in the restaurant below Leon Ling's apartment. Mrs. Ki speculated that Siegel was murdered out of jealousy. And she alerted police that Siegel had other white female friends who were married to Chinese men. Stories like this get from the police to the press and informed readers about the surprising numbers of interracial couples living among them. Additionally, when the public learned of Siegel's love letters to Ling, it showed that she was actually pursuing a relationship rather than being a naive victim of deception. The bourgeois public had a hard time accepting this notion of a consenting mutual relationship. Dan Slattery, a police spokesman, told the world about the letters, quote, they were all what I would call clean love letters, but the endearing terms she called the Chinamen were revolting to me. (laughs) Everyone read just as if the Chinamen had been a white man and decently engaged to the seagull girl, end quote. By engaging in romantic relationships with Chinese men, Siegel had behaved inappropriately as far as Slattery and others were concerned. Her letters read like, quote, the ingenuous love notes of a girl madly in love with a man she respected and evidently considered her equal in every way, end quote. Like, how dare she treat him as an equal in every way? She apparently respected him. How disgusting. (laughs) Just awful. Yeah, the most horrifying thing you can imagine. And remember, <laughs> this is coming from the police spokesperson. So, like, you just, you know if that's, like, the official line from the police, the actual cops were worse than right. that. Right. You know, like, the ones oh, that they wouldn't yeah, let they talk pissed. to the press were way worse. Right, right, right. You know what I mean? Like, no, send Dan out. He'll make this sound real good, like. <laughs> uh... 
And so anyway, so this really represented a threat to the social order, right? Her, the fact that she seemed to be pursuing a Chinese man. Unlike most of the stereotypes, according to Lee Chu, a merchant interviewed by The Independent, despite some checkered backgrounds, quote, many interracially married white women were excellent and faithful wives and mothers, end quote. That's also not a great quote, <laughs> like that the, the, the Chinese that the Chinese guy is like. Actually, many of them are excellent, faithful wives and mothers. You know, like of course they were. Like of course they were. Mm-hmm. The long-term commitments founded on romantic affection and mutual respect challenged the critics who assumed that these were impossible in interracial marriage. In How the Other Half Lives, Jacob Rees, whose sympathy towards European immigrants was not extended to the Chinese, uh, proposed a surprising solution to the problem of decadence and vice that he found in Chinatown. He argued that even though, quote, the Chinese are in no sense a desirable element of the population, that they serve no useful purpose here, whatever they may have done elsewhere in other days, that having let them in, we must make the best of it. Rather than banish the Chinaman, I would have the door opened wider for his wife, Make it a condition of his coming or staying that he bring his wife with him, end quote. Mm-hmm. In this way, Reese believed that Chinese immigrants could be domesticated through the kind of ideology that domestic women were the basis of morality in society, something we talked about back in the Robert Matthews episodes. Mm-hmm. As Reese saw it, the opium-addicted white women, quote, worshiping nothing save the pipe that has enslaved them body and soul, end quote, provided none of the feminine virtues necessary to counter Chinatown's masculine vices, a proposal that stood in stark contrast to the West Coast perception of Chinese women as prostitutes exclusively. This is part of the reason that they excluded Chinese women to begin with, was the idea that they were all prostitutes. Again, Mm -hmm. something that fundamentally wasn't true, but other writers deliberately misled or hid the full truth of interracial relationships in order to paint white mothers in Chinatown with a kind of disparaging brush. Louis Beck, for example, in his book, New York, New York's Chinatown told tales of, quote, mainly ignorant and depraved women who treat their female children very much as do their husbands, end quote. In one such story, Beck accused Mrs. Annie Lee uh, of selling her five-year-old daughter to a Chinese man for $44. That man was later arrested for assaulting the child. He also accused Lee of selling another daughter, Katie, to, quote, a Chinaman and his wife, end quote. But Beck did not explain either the outcomes or the context of either of these stories. In the case of Katie, the New York State Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children, or NYSPCC, investigated the situation, and it came to trial in general session. And it turns out the case was dropped after it was learned that Katie was adopted by Chu Yen Ying and his wife, Ah Mei. Mrs. Lee was very poor and was struggling to care for Katie. By contrast, Chu Yen Ying had considerable wealth, and he and his wife were raising Katie as their own daughter, providing proper care and giving her a Christian education. Good. The NYSPCC also learned that Chu Yen Ying and his wife were highly respected Christians and that no sale had occurred. It was just a mother trying to give her daughter a better life through adoption. As for the five-year-old, that case also was brought to court, where it was learned that Mrs. Lee had left her child to be watched by the Chinese man who was known and trusted throughout the neighborhood. Now, we don't know the exact details. They're kind of lost to the, in the court case. But the court absolved Mrs. Lee of any wrongdoing in the matter. And it all seems like it was kind of an unfortunate circumstance. The man was arrested for assaulting the child. But the man had a good reputation in the neighborhood. And it seemed like she just left him to watch the child for a... She just was running a few errands. And he was a guy that was known and trusted. And it seemed like it would be safe and fine to do so. But he turned out to assault her. Like, it seems like it was just an unfortunate right. error rather than some sort of insidious thing. What we know for sure is that she didn't sell the child for $44. Mm-hmm. Like, she just asked a man to watch her daughter while she did some things that she couldn't take her daughter to do. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that that was a bad choice, but not a criminal choice. Mm-hmm. The way that Beck wrote the story was to suggest that she's just like an insidious evil woman and that's how she ended up in chinatown to begin with right yes Beck helps contribute the kind of growing alarm about the presence of interracial couples in the city and unfortunately these stories like those of mrs young in brooklyn the one who snapped back at the new york times reporter Mm -hmm. they barely cut through the far more scandalous accusations 
uh, and the racial bias that really dominated the press long before the Siegel murder, and then just got worse after it. Correct. I think we've built up the context pretty well. And Mike, that is where we will stop our story for the night. (laughs) Good place to stop. All right, man. All right, buddy. All right, I'll talk to you later. Yep, later. See you.